The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Good morning. We are going through 1 John. So this is our second week, and uh, we're going to be about 10 to 12 weeks in 1 John, one of my favorite books uh, in the Bible, one of great simplicity, um, but also one of great power. Um, that oftentimes when there's simplicity, there's, there's power in it. And so uh, real quick, want to just talk about why are we going through 1 John? Three things. Uh, first, that 1 John is going to help us learn what it means to love. And so what we do is when you read this book, and I hope that you are, you know, we invited last week, um, please read along with us. It's five chapters, and so you can dig in. And so please read along, study this book as we go through it. But First John is going to take you to school on what it means to love, and, uh, and it guides us in that. Uh, the second thing is it clarifies what it means for us to follow Jesus. John doesn't pull back punches. He talks about that you're in the light or you're in the darkness. You're either walking in love or hate. And so he's very drastic and very clear about here's what it means to follow Jesus. And then the third thing that 1 John does is that uh, 1 John assures us, it, it encourages us uh, that we are believers. And so it gives clarity, you know, warns those that aren't and gives encouragement to us uh, that are following Jesus. It says, this is who you are. This is what it means that you are following him. And so today we are going to be in 1 John uh, verses 5 through 10. So before we get there, I want to uh, just kind of do an illustration. So introductory statement. So I want you to close your eyes. Do not fall asleep on me. All right. I'm always like, you know, all right, so I want, you to, I want you to close your eyes with me. I want you to imagine that you've never seen light before, that you were born into this world and you're blind, and that you've grown up your whole life and you've not been able to see the faces of your parents, your loved ones, you've never seen the deep blue of the ocean, or that you have never seen the beautiful sky at night with all the stars out. Instead, you've been limited. You've never been able to perceive of the reality that you know is outside of you. You've heard of it, you've felt it, but you've never seen it. And so you lack the clarity to be able to fully perceive of this world that you know exists, that you know is all around you, but you're hindered. Not only do you lack this clarity of sight to see, but but it also hinders you from engaging in the world as you would want to. You can't fully run or drive. You see that there's all these limitations because while you know the things are around you, you don't know where they are or if you're going to bump into them or if you're going to run into them. And so your whole life, there's a world outside of you that you aren't able to fully perceive and that you have been hindered engaging with. And this has been your life. This is, this is a hard existence. It's difficult, not impossible to overcome. But this is the one that Jesus encounters. There's a man in John 9 that, that has lived his whole life blind. And that most people think that he's cursed by God. But Jesus comes and he says that he's not cursed of God. Instead, that God is going to do his finest work through this man. That his glory is going to be seen. 
And so he comes and he grabs mud. And I want you to imagine this is your life and Jesus calls and he puts mud on your eyes. <laughs> and you're thinking, how is this going to help? And he tells you to wash it off. And for the first time in your life, you open your eyes and you see. And what do you see is you see the face of Christ. You see the face of the one that has, has given you sight. And he does this and he gives this illustration. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus comes to bring sight to the blind. And this, and you can open your eyes now, this is not simply physical sight. Jesus did this to reveal something far more important, that there's a deeper problem, you see, that all of us have, and it's one of spiritual blindness, one of inability to perceive the spiritual realm that's around us, that we know it's there, we bump into it at times, but we're not able to fully perceive it. Instead, we constantly trip over things because it's there, and there's a reality, there's an objective reality about the spiritual realm, but we don't see it as we ought to. And Jesus says, I came to bring light into this world. And to the man, the most important thing that he did was not restore his sight, but told him that he was the Messiah and revealed that there is true spiritual light, sight that Jesus was bringing. The Pharisees in there, they denied that they needed sight. They said that they could see. And Jesus says, he says, I came to the world for judgment, that those who are blind may receive sight. And those who think they see will become blind. For all those who know and admit they are in the dark, he offers light. But for those who think that they see, they will remain blind. And so it's this illustration of darkness and light that gives us this introduction for our passage today. And so if you will turn with me, 1 John 1, 5 through 10, and read along with this idea in mind of darkness and light. Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is God's word. So the big idea that's going to guide us for our time together is that God is light. God is light, and fellowship with God means we walk in the light. God is light, and fellowship with God, oneness with God, means we walk in the light. And so what does it mean to walk in the light? And that's what our outline is going to be, and that's what we're going to talk about today, is that walk in the light means three things based on this passage. Walk in the light means pursuing purity. It means living a life of transparency. And it means walking in forgiveness and cleansing. Walking in forgiveness and cleansing. And so first, living the light means pursuing purity. Now, look at verse 5. He says that this is the message that Jesus gave to him. This is the first thing that he starts with, is the nature of God. What do you think God is like? He says, this is the most important thing that you can 
you can think. This is the most important thing about you is what do you perceive God to be like? And he says, this is the first place that Jesus started. God is light. God is light. And Jesus says this all throughout the gospel of John. In John 1, 9, he says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Again, in John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, what does it mean that God is light? I mean, we know that it's a symbol, but, but what does it mean? And I think that there are three things it means. First, it means that God literally has a brilliance of light that, that echoes from his presence, that, that, that spreads forth from who he is. And you see this. I mean, in the beginning, God spoke and light came into existence. But then you look at Moses. And Moses, when he sees the glory of God, his face shines, I mean, people are like, listen, bro, we can't look at your face, it's too bright, we gotta put a veil over you. And so they put a veil over Moses because they don't wanna be blinded because whenever Moses would enter into God's presence, his brilliance, his light would, would imprint itself on his face. We see this with Jesus. When Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, he is in the state of glorification and it says that his, he became so white that it was brilliant, it was almost blinding. It says that he was whiter than that you can bleach any garment. Or like, we, we can't even get that shade of white. You go to Home Depot, it's not there. You know, it's super white. And so it's this brilliance of light that echoes from it. And then you see in Revelation, Revelation 21, it talks about that there will be no need for the sun or for the moon, but instead the light of God's presence will illuminate the cities and the nations will be drawn into it because of his brilliance. And so God, there is a, a, a light and illumination that comes from his presence but we see it's not just that. We, we see light is also revelation. It means to be a, re, a revelation of truth, of reality. When you think about being in the darkness, you think you don't know what things are all at. You know, I mean, even in my own house, you turn off lights, I'm bumping into things. You know, I'm like, put out my hand, you know, you stub your toe, you hit the door, the baby wakes up, and you're like, dang, I should just turn on a light. And, and so, you, you know, light brings clarity about what's around you. Darkness hides it. And so what it means that God is light is it means that he comes and his, he brings the truth about what this world is really about, about who we are, about how we were made to live, is that we can live as if we understand these things in ourselves, pulling ideas from thin air or from our feelings or our emotions or from the current philosophy of our culture, or we can live in light of what God says, of what Christ says is the truth of who you are, of what it means to live a meaningful life of where fulfillment and contentment is, is that he comes and his, his self-disclosure, his self-revelation, it brings truth. It brings light so that we might know how to navigate this world. In Psalms, it says that your word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. Is that God's word comes and it shows us how we ought to live and where we ought to step. And so that's part of what it means that God is light, that when he comes into your life, he begins to bring clarity to the things that were in darkness before. But most importantly, what it means that God is light is that it means that he is morally perfect. It means there is no spot or stain in God, that he is, the Bible calls him holy. It's the defining characteristic of God is that he is holy, he is set apart, is that there is no one like him, there is no one before him, there will be no one after him, and that there is no stain of sin and he says it positively, but then he also says it negatively. And it's really bad grammar because it's a double negative, but it's really good theology. And he says, he says, 
and in him is no darkness at all. And literally in the Greek, it says, in him, no darkness, never none, right? There, that he goes and he's emphatic and that there is no possibility of that there is any sin or stain in God at all. There's no greed in God. There's no selfishness. There's no lust. There's no discontentment, right? There's peace. There's contentment. There is joy. There is patience, God exemplifies perfection. And, and it's so hard for us because often we read in God what we see in ourselves or what we see in others. And John is emphatic in saying that the first place to understand, if, if you want to start with anywhere, when you start with God, it's this. It's that God is not like us and that he is perfect and that he is holy and that his motives are always good in what he does. His, his motives and his actions are always in harmony. He says, this is so important to start with this. And this has implications for our lives, right? I mean, because if God is holy, if God can't stand sin, if he hates sin, if that is essential about God, then what does that mean for us? Because in contrast, we aren't. I mean, that's one of the first things that you notice when you draw near to God truly is that you see your lack you know, when I actually encountered God, I began to see my sin for what it was in light of him. I mean, when you see, I mean, I don't know if you've done this, if you see different shades of light, of white, when you look at them, you can tell that one is actually not as white as you thought it was. And this is what happens is that we think that we're pure because we're, we're contrasting ourselves to other people around us. And we're like, hey, next to them, I look pretty good. <laughs> But as soon as you look at the purity of God, you instantly realize that you're not white, that you're not pure, that you're not clean. And this contrast becomes very evident. And so how do we, how do we, how do we adjust? What do we do? And it, and it says that we are to walk in the light. We are to walk in the light. And so the first way that we walk in the light is that we, is that we trust that Christ can make us pure. And this is what it says. He says that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And so the first place to start is realizing that we have to be attached to the light, that we are merely reflectors of it. Like the moon, we reflect the sun. And so we have to be attached to him if we are ever to, to be children of light. And so what that means is it means that you trust that you cannot take away your sin. You can't fix yourself. There's no amount of self-effort. There's no amount of, of hard work or willpower that is going to change your nature. That we sin because we are sinners. It's part of our nature and it produces this, these sinful actions. It's not a matter of me just changing my outward actions. My heart at the core has to be changed. It has to be purified. It has to be cleansed. And that's not something that I can do. Instead, it's something that Christ has done if I will receive it. It's why he went to the cross. It's why he took upon our sin. And notice it, how it says, cleanses us from some sin, from part of our sin, from all of our sin, all of it. And so when we think, well, I'll give you this area of my life, but this area I've, I'm going to hold on to, I'm going to fix myself. We're not trusting the cross. We're saying, well, your cross was kind of sufficient, but I need to add to it. My work, my ability, you know, you were kind of powerful, God, but you just lacked what I had to offer. And so let me bring my effort to the table and see what happens. 
And, and how arrogant, how foolish of us. It's his blood cleanses us from all sin, all of it. And so we come to the cross with nothing in our hands saying, I give you everything and in return, I trust that you will take all of it and you will give me all of yourself and that you will cleanse me and you will make me pure. And this is what it means to be connected to the light is that we become children. In 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. And so this is a position that changes in our lives. Our status changes from those that are under God's wrath, those that are children of darkness, to those that are children of light. And unless our nature changes, we have no hope of walking in the light practically. And so, but once this, once our status changes, we become children of the light and we can begin to walk in the light. And so what does it mean for us to walk in the light? Well, I think first and foremost, it means for us to see that Christ is beautiful. What it means to be a follower of Christ is it to see the beauty of Jesus, to see his love, to see his grace, to see his power, and to be drawn to him, to be attracted to him. As this is what beckons us to die to ourselves, is that we see him for who he is. But what it means to pursue purity is it means to also to obey is it means that when we hear Christ's call in our life, when we hear his word, we don't simply know it, but we obey it. Is that we submit our lives and say, God, what you call me to do, I will do. And that it, this purifies us. As we obey God's word, it further sets us apart and it helps us to see him and it helps us to, to see the sin that we are, we are seeking to repent of and to turn from. And so as, as we pursue purity, we walk in in obedience, as abiding in the Lord, One of the implications that John says is going to happen is that your relationships with other Christians are going to become beautiful. Do you want want your marriage to grow? If you're married to another believer, do you want your marriage to, to become more beautiful, to become more vibrant, to become more whole? The way you work on that is by pursuing Christ. As you pursue Christ and as your spouse pursues Christ, you will grow far closer together than if you were just pursuing one another. Is that your common pursuit of Christ? And this is what he says. It's interesting because he says, if you walk in light as he is in light, you'll have fellowship with, and you would think he would say fellowship with God. But he says, you'll have fellowship with one another. And so what he's saying here is he's saying that the way that the church becomes more beautiful, the way that the church becomes stronger is by each of its members individually pursuing Christ. As we pursue holiness, as we pursue purity, this makes us stronger. And this is what the world is so desperate for, is the world is desperate to see these kinds of relationships. Because we don't have the power to overcome our differences on our own. right? If we're not pursuing purity, then when somebody angers me, then guess what? I'm going to cut that relationship. You know, I've got more comfortable, easier relationships in my life that I can go to. And so, you know, if you frustrate me, sorry, have fun over there. I'm going to go find something easier. Because we're not reflecting, we don't have great clarity that, listen, Jesus has much easier relationships than ours. And he could say, listen, the Trinity is a great relationship. I don't need to deal with these people. But instead, he is patient and he is kind towards us and he is gracious. And as we pursue purity, that becomes more clear how he has treated us. And therefore, it empowers us to treat those who have wronged us, those who are different than us, and that light is that we begin to love those that are different than us rather than just flocking to those that are just like us. 
And this is beautiful. This is attractive. This is what the world longs for. And its tolerance and its desire for diversity, it doesn't have the power to truly achieve it. But in the gospel, there is power to do it as we draw near the Lord. And so this is what we see is that how do we walk in the light is that we pursue purity. We pursue purity. The second thing that he says is is that we live in the light is that it means that we live a life of transparency. We live a life of transparency. Now notice in verses 6, 8, and 10, he's talking about if we say, if we say this, but we do something different. He's talking here about a discrepancy in what we say and what we do. He's talking about hypocrisy. He's saying that if we, in verse 6, if we say we have no sin, right, but we, but we walk in darkness, we say we have fellowship with the Father, but we're walking in the darkness. We lie, and we don't practice the truth. In verse 8, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In verse 10, he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. You see, the false teachers in John's day, they deny the reality of their sin. They said, positionally, we're great with God. We're righteous. They compartmentalized their life. They said, in this area, God, we're, we're good, we're fine, but practically their life didn't manifest righteousness. And listen to the implications of what he says. He says that these people who are, who are hypocrites, who are saying one thing, but their lives are bearing out a, a whole different reality, he says that they're liars, that they're lying about who they are. He says that they don't practice the truth, that it's possible that they know the truth, but they're not practicing it. He says that they're self-deceived. You know, at a certain point, it's possible to deceive yourself. Whenever you tell a lie long enough, you start to believe that it's true. And he says that this is what happens, is that they have known the truth and they have not practiced it, that they've done it for so long that they, they've deceived themselves to think that it's okay. They, they, they think that they truly are following Christ when they're not. He says the truth isn't in them. And more importantly, they call God a liar because God, God says that he is holy. He says that we have sin, and they say we don't. I have no sin, and therefore they call God a liar. God's word isn't in them. Isaiah 5.20, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. See, this is what this people have done, is that when sin is revealed in their life, they deny it. There is no sin. I'm fine. And they close their eyes. Like an ostrich running away, they bury their head in the sand and refuse to look around, thinking that the danger will simply pass them by. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about this. He says, The idea of having no sin is a delusion. You are altogether deceived if you say so. The truth is not in you, and you have not seen things in the true light. You must have shut your eyes to the high requirements of the law. You must be a stranger to your own heart. You must be blind to your own conduct every day, and you must have forgotten to search your thoughts and to weigh your motives, or you would have detected the presence of sin. He who cannot find water in the sea is not more foolish than the man who cannot perceive sin in his members. As the salt as the salt flavors every drop of the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. Sin is present everywhere, and so for us to deny its reality 
is the same as us denying that, that the ocean is made up of water and just closing our eyes and being blind to the reality that is ever-present around us. And this is what Jesus talks about is the reality of the Pharisees in John 9, is that they close their eyes, and he says that they are blind, but they say that they see. And he says, if you would just admit that you are blind, then I might come and heal you, and you might have sight. So what about us, though? Because often many of us will say, well, Trevor, I would never say that I'm perfect. I mean, I would never say that I'm not a sinner, that I'm not broken, that I don't have struggles. You know, I would admit that. Well, many of us would admit that generally. We would make that broad statement, but yet in particular, in, in particular areas of our life, we're very similar to this. When we start talking specifics, we would say, well, that's not really sin. I mean, it's not that big of a deal. God's fine with it. It doesn't really bother him, you know? And we start to make God like us. God, you're, of course you're apathetic. I mean, you know, to my lust. You know, I mean, everybody looks at porn, or everybody masturbates, or everybody, you know, goes off in, in this area of life. It's not that big of a deal, God. And so we, we make God like us. God, it's okay. I mean, you know, I just need this in my life. You know, I know that you're, you're not about greed, but, but for me, you make an exception. <laughs> and so it's okay for me to be greedy. It's okay for me to hoard. You know, that, that's fine, because, you know, we got this agreement. You know me, and, and you treat me differently than everybody else. And so in, all, in these different specific areas of our life, we, we do exactly this. We deny that it's sin. We deny that God hates it. And we justify it. We rationalize it. We think it's, it's fine. It's no big deal. What happens when God turns the light in your, into your life? He, he starts taking the flashlight of his word or his spirit, and he starts shining in different areas of your life because he does. Because why, why does God do that? Because he loves you. God doesn't want you to walk in the dark. He doesn't want you to be beat up by the spiritual realities around you that you're going to walk into if you're not seeing things correctly. And so God in his love and grace is going to turn the light on in your life. And the question is, what do you do when God does that? Because when we see our parents and Adam and Eve, what do they do? God comes and the first thing they do is they deny that they got sin. They're like, they run away. They create fig leaves and then they, they leave God's presence. They hide away. And so one of the first things that we see is that they try to leave the presence of God. And so often when we're in sin, we leave community. We say, listen, I've got this and so I don't really need to be around other believers. I don't need to be around the church. And you start seeing people isolate. They start running away. And you know that that's not going to fix your sin that it's instead going to compound it. That's exactly what the enemy looks for, as he says, please get in isolation, get by yourself, because then he's able to accuse and to attack and to deceive even more. Now, the second thing that they do is that when God, God won't let them isolate themselves, he comes and he finds them. God hunts them down like he did Jonah because he loves them. He says, where are you at? And so he finds them, and they're hiding in their isolation. And the, the next thing that they do in their sin is that they blame right? It's, hey, listen, it's not my fault. It's the woman you gave me. I mean, if you wouldn't have given me this woman, I would have been fine. And so they start, got, Adam starts blaming his wife, and his wife starts blaming the serpent, you know, and so they blame. You see that they cast the blame on one another. They start justifying, and we see this so much in our life. God, it's not me. It's, my, it's the parents you gave me. If they wouldn't raise me up this way, then I wouldn't struggle with this. God, if you wouldn't give me this spouse or this friend, or if you would just change the circumstances in my life, I wouldn't struggle with this. And so we don't, 
We don't actually own our sin. We instead just cast blame on other people. It's their fault. It's them. Listen, do you think that the problem, the real problem is your circumstances? Do you think the real problem is the people around you? And do you think the problem runs deeper? The problem runs into your heart. The problem is our sin nature. The problem is us. It's you. Because that is the start of true healing. That's the start of the Christian faith. Is it when we realize that, listen, we have a problem and we can't fix it. We can't solve it. And that problem's not going away. Age isn't going to fix it. Your circumstances aren't going to change it. That instead, if anything, it's going to compound it and it's going to make it work. It's going to make it worse. This is the beginning. When you, when you come to that realization, you finally can give up on yourself and you can trust in God and you can rely upon him to save you. And this is what he says. He says, if you confess, if you come and you confess your sin, and what does it mean to confess? It means to be in agreement with God about how he sees things in your life is that you come before God and you say, God, I agree with you that this is sin in my life and that you hate it. And I need, I need, I beg, I plead with you to rescue me from it. Come and, and, and save me and change me. Is it, man, and this, is, this is, leads into the third point, is that it talks about that it, he comes and he cleanses us, he forgives us. He forgives us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you come, and you've had to experience this, when you know that you've been, if you're a believer, you're walking in a period of disobedience and you can feel the weight of it. The first thing that happens in my life is my peace is stripped, my joy is taken. And you just are weighed down because you're trying to deal with the weight of sin on your own, in your own power. And there is such refreshing when you come and you confess your sin. Because what happens is it says that, that God is faithful and just and that he forgives us. And what it means that he forgives us is it means that he takes that weight of sin off of our shoulders and he reminds us that he has taken the full weight of sin. And there is a relief in that. It is, it's, it's as if this whole burden, you've been carrying around this, this huge weight on your shoulders and God takes it off and you can finally take a deep breath again. And you can finally walk. And it says that he, he cleanses us. And what it means there is that it means that he comes and he, he gives us a bath as he washes us so that we're not dirty any longer. I don't know about you, I've, I love camping. And so there are times when I was a kid, I'd go camping, I'd be out for days on end. And man, I would come in, I'd stink. I would, I would just, I would not smell good. My clothes would be dirty. I mean, it would be nasty. People would be like, you need to just don't be around me. You know, and some of us, we walk around like that spiritually. You know, we walk around and we've been carrying this burden of sin for, I mean, we haven't confessed to God in, you know, weeks, months, years, and we just, we stink. You know, I mean, we get around people and, and we haven't been cleansed, we haven't been washed, and there's no refreshment in our presence because we haven't been with the Lord. And God says, if you would come and if you would but confess to me, I would cleanse you and that you would have a freshness about you. You would have a fresh joy my presence would come and, and would dwell with you. I would be near to you. And hear this. It's not that when we sin, when, when, when we sin, we break fellowship with God, not relationship with God. You cannot lose your salvation. When you've become a Christian, when you become a child of the light, you endure in that. But we can walk 
in disobedience to the Lord. We can, we can hinder that fellowship, that closeness of relationship that we have. And God says, listen, I want to be near with you. I want to be intimate with you. I want that to be the most important and vital relationship that you have. And so come, draw near to me. Draw near to me. As we close, there's a, a story. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this book, uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And uh, in it, there's a, a little boy named Eustace, one of my favorite stories, one of my favorite illustrations. There's a boy named Eustace, and he is he's greedy, he's power hungry. I mean, he, he's a, a bully, but he can't really be a bully because he hasn't ha- doesn't have enough power. And so you see it, he's kind of this, you know, he's, he's always ruining things throughout the story. And they're going, uh, and they land on this island, and Eustace discovers this den of treasure. He doesn't know what it is, but he decides finally his lust for greed overcomes his any kind of discernment or wisdom. And so he grabs all this gold thinking, oh, I'm going to be wealthy now. I'm going to have the power that I've so longed for. And he doesn't realize that what this gold does is that it transforms him into a dragon for its cursed gold. It's dragon's gold. And so it turns him into a dragon, and he wakes up the next day and sees his reflection. And it's this odd moment of that he's finally got something that he's longed for for so long. He's got power, true power, I mean, to be a dragon, to be able to fly, to be able to do what he pleases with this effort. But he found that in this pursuit of what he longed for, it led to isolation. It led to emptiness, that he had what he thought would satisfy, and instead it disappointed. And so he goes this this long route, and in, and in this process, it's so, it's so awesome to see because this is exactly what needed to happen to him, is that he needed this before he realized that what he was longing for was the wrong thing, that his affections and desires were set on the wrong end. And finally, towards the end of the story, he sees this line, Aslan, who is the Christ figure in the story, and it says that he was terrified Not because he thought the lion was going to eat him, he knew, but he said there was something about him that was terrifying, that was powerful. And the lion told him to get up and follow him. And so Eustace, that is trapped, this little boy that's trapped in this monstrous dragon, goes and follows this lion, Aslan. And he sees before him this large pool of water, and he longs to be cleansed. He longs to go in and to bathe because he's been wounded. And so he longs to cleanse and heal his wounds. But Aslan says, you can't. You must... You must unclothe yourself. And at first he thinks, how can I unclothe myself? I'm a dragon. I'm completely naked. And he realizes that dragons have skin much like a snake. And so he thinks, I, I must first ungarb myself. I must, I must shed this skin. And so he starts to scratch at himself. And a couple of scales fall off. And he, then he, he realizes he must dig deeper. And so he digs deep into himself. And he takes off this layer of skin. And he thinks, oh, i finally gotten, and he steps, and then he looks, and he sees his feet, and he still has this, this old, crusty, scaly exterior. And he thinks, well, how, I, maybe I need to do it again. And so he digs even deeper and begins trying to remove all this excess scale and this weight that is carrying and, and, and burdening him down. And he takes it off a second time. And then he looks, and again, it's still there. This skin is still there. And so he digs a third time and peels it off, and he sees behind him these three layers of skin, but yet he looks down and it's still there. And Aslan turns to him and says, you'll never get it off that way. You must let me unclothe you. And so he was scared to start, but, but he turned on his back, and he said that, the, that Aslan took his claws and, gave, and dug in deep, 
And it was said it was one of the most terrible and, and painful experiences, but it was also one of the most freeing because he felt Aslan dig deep in and he started taking off these large chunks of skin. And finally, at last, he looked behind him and he could see this skin, this huge weight of this dragon was stripped from him. And there before him sat this, sat himself finally. Once more, he was a little boy. And Aslan tossed him into the pool and he said that it smarted at first, but then it was the most cleansing, refreshing experience that he'd ever had in his life. And this is what happens, that you and I, we cannot cleanse ourselves, We cannot heal ourselves, But instead, we come to Christ. And confession isn't easy because it requires us to own our sin. It requires us to walk out of darkness into the light. But he says that it is the most freeing, that this weight that has been holding you down, God desires to free you of it and desires that you would experience fresh cleansing and joy in his presence. And so as we come up and as we worship, that's my invitation for you, is that we have three by five cards that are sitting in front of you um, and do allow the Lord to do work in you. That we're only as sick as our secrets. And so my, I would ask that you would come and that you would you'd be true before the Lord. You'd be genuine. You'd be transparent. If you're here and you don't know the Lord, you would cry out to him. Maybe for the first time, you've begun to see your own sin. That it's not just something that hurts you or hurts others, but you see that you have offended God, that you have rejected him, that you've you pushed aside his presence. You have not responded to his love and grace in your life. Instead, you've denied him and that you would respond to his love and grace and that you cry out for forgiveness because he is ready to embrace you, ready to forgive you. Perhaps you're here and you're a believer and you know you've been walking in disobedience. You feel the weight of sin and has been, been holding you down. Would you come and would you confess it? Would you, would you make it known to God and would you find a fellow believer that's my application for after today is that you would find another believer. James 5.16, it says, if we confess our sins to one another and pray for one another in order that you might be healed, healing comes through us together confessing our sins and praying for each other. And so find a fellow believer and acknowledge your sin, bring it into light. That's what set me free and it's going to continue to set you free. We do this consistently, a lifestyle of confession and repentance of sin. We don't grow out of it. We don't mature past it. And so come and allow God to cleanse you, allow God to heal you, that you would be beautiful and radiant, that the world would see and come to you, come to us, that Christ might be seen. Let us pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that only you can do this work in us. And so we pray that you would heal us, that you would cleanse us, that your forgiveness would take the, the weight that we feel because of sin off of our shoulders, Lord. And so do what only you can do. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.